Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Taffy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Gender Stories. I am, as ever, excited to introduce you another wonderful guest. Today, I'm interviewing Addison Rose Vincent. They're a 27-year-old queer, trans-feminine, non-binary advocate from Los Angeles, California. Um, they were born in Canada and raised in Michigan, and Addison moved to California at the age of 17 to come out as part of the LGBTQ community and pursue their dreams. Since graduating from Chapman University with a major in peace studies in 2015, they have worked for several Los Angeles nonprofit organizations providing direct services to LGBTQ people facing sexual or domestic violence, housing insecurity, unemployment, addiction, and risk for HIV. Addison now serves as the executive director of the Non-Binary and Intersex Recognition Project, a national advocacy organization working to create fair gender options on state IDs and help end invasive corrective surgeries on intersex youth. Addison is also the founder and lead consultant of Break the Binary LLC, the founder of the Non-Binary Union of Los Angeles and the co-director of history reimagined. So welcome to the show. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I I love bringing this conversation to my listeners. So, so when I got your email, I said, absolutely, I want to do this. And then a lot of life happened. And finally, <laughs> we're here talking to one another. So to start with, tell me a little bit about your organization and why did you think that the Gender Stories listeners would be a good audience for this conversation? Yeah, so our organization, just as you said, NIRP, the Non-Binary and Intersex Recognition Project, we go uh, state by state and push legislation that promotes a third gender option on state IDs and birth certificates. So in California, and actually as of today in New York, um, as well as in many other states, about 20 at this point, now have X as a third gender option for non-binary and or intersex people um, in those states. So it's been really exciting work and our team is developing new committees. I actually took on the executive director role uh, later last year. And so I've been doing a lot of restructuring so that way we can really achieve some of our bigger goals, including education and doing training. We really want to train uh, uh, healthcare workers, uh, surgeons, parents, teachers, other community-based organizations on why non-binary identities are valid, but also why intersex bodies deserve autonomy and should not be subjected to invasive and unconsensual uh, corrective surgeries. Well, I call them genital mutilation, not corrective surgeries. So that's what we Absolutely. do. Oh, that, well, that is a lot of work, actually. So I, I want to talk about all of that. And I wonder if we can kind of walk the listeners through a little bit. So one of the things I'm going to ask you is if you can offer the listeners a definition of intersex, if they've not come across uh, that word before. For sure. Or done 
and what that means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, intersex refers to people whose sex characteristics, so that could refer to genitals, chromosomes, hormones, uh, do not necessarily fall into the traditional binary of male and female anatomy. Um, so may, many common intersex traits might look like chromosome, uh, chromosome uh, uh, variations, so it might look like XXY um, as one example. Uh, some people may be born with varying levels of a clitoris or penis. Um, and so it's, it's really different to each intersex person. And it's not just based on exterior genitalia or being visibly intersex. A lot of it may be interior um, uh, characteristics too that make up an intersex person. Now, an old term that we no longer use is hermaphrodite. And so a lot of people might know what hermaphrodite means. And that really uh, roots from the Greek mythology of uh, Aphrodite and Hermes making a child named Hermaphrodite. But um, we don't use that term anymore uh, because it's seen as just medical, invasive, you know, kind of icky. So we use the term intersex now. Absolutely. And I know a lot of folks see as kind of pathologizing or offensive, the, the other term. And like you said, my understanding is also that there isn't, sometimes there isn't anything that's visible. And some people might even find out that they're intersex much later in life, right? Mm -hmm. It's not some people uh, might find, you know, their parents might find out when the baby's born. And for other folks, they might be in their 20s, 30s, even 40s and 50s, I've known people who found out they were intersex much later in their life. Is that correct? Absolutely. So a lot of intersex people face shame, stigma, isolation growing up, and their parents and even the surgeons will tell them just to keep their experiences, their bodies a secret, uh, that there's no one else like them, that there is no term or community for this. Mm -hmm. um, so they grow up with a lot of shame and stigma um, around their bodies, maybe not even understanding that they're intersex in the first place, but maybe that they're just... Uh, broken or defective. There's something wrong with them too and that they can't adhere to the female or male uh, strict anatomy binary. Um, so for a lot of them too, they do grow up with that silencing or just lack of understanding or lack of knowledge. And then maybe one day they meet someone or read an article or get outreach to by someone and they learn more about themselves in the process. You know, just two years ago when I was first uh, you know, really getting involved with the organization I actually started back in 2017 and then getting more involved in 2018. Uh, I met this one woman who was 51 years old and she had just found out that she was intersex the year before and she had been married to a surgeon for 25 years and he knew that she was intersex, but he didn't feel that it was his place in all those years to ever bring it up. So um, he knew about her, but she didn't know about her. Wow. And that's so interesting. That is really interesting. And also as a family therapist, I have to say at that moment, I was like, wow, that is a lot of repair and family therapy for that couple that it's, it's the whole thing in itself, right? I kind of want to talk about this binary, right? We do have this binary, this cisgenderist binary, I would mm -hmm. call it culture, you know, that we make an assumption, the bodies um, are male or female, you know, this idea that, um, our genitals align with certain gender identities. And we know that that has been challenged mm -hmm. by science, that has been challenged by community activism. And so I'm interested in the fact that your organization seems to work with at the intersection of intersex and non-binary uh, kind of legal recognition. So I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about how do you see intersex issues and non-binary issues kind of intersect with one another in your work? 
Yeah, and the work that we do in passing state legislation to allow for third gender options on state IDs, I think those those gender options typically do refer to as sex. And a lot of people, like you were saying earlier, um, a lot of people conflate or mix together gender and sex. And for many people, they are aligned to even for trans and non-binary people, they do align, but not always. Um, I think that was interesting in our work in passing those third gender options on that legislation on state IDs and, and birth certificates is that it opens the room for non-binary people to be able to self-identify on those legal documents, but it also creates an opportunity for intersex affirmation. And by that, I mean that when babies are now born in certain states where there are third um, sex options as X on a birth certificate, we can actually tell and show parents and surgeons, hey, if your child is exhibiting intersex traits and characteristics, there is a third option now for them too. You don't need to force them into a box of male or female, which then will oftentimes feel that pressure to conform them with surgeries, conform them with socialization, put them into those boxes in so many other ways. So we're hoping that maybe we can even prevent some of that violence by having those birth certificates available in the first place. I'm really glad you're naming that because I know one of the things that intersex activists have really worked on so hard for such a long time, decades and decades really, is to stop the violence of um, uh, genital mutilation, I'll call it corrective surgery, some people call it, but this idea that somehow these babies or sometimes young toddlers by the time surgery is uh, done uh, need to have genitals that conform to societal expectations because my understanding is that often there is no medical reason for most of those surgeries beyond conforming to societal expectations around genital appearance. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely been excuses and I, I've seen uh, so many intersex advocates speak out about uh, living after an invasive surgery like that. And when they try to talk to those surgeons and those doctors and those healthcare professionals, there's always the excuse of, well, it was cancerous. And so we needed to perform surgery to protect your life or to save you uh, from your own body. And that's a narrative also that we see not only for intersex people, but for trans people too. Um, I was just watching the documentary Disclosure and just seeing, oh, yes. and just seeing too how so many, even in the last few years, there have been reoccurring roles for trans people in uh, medical types of shows where the trans person finds out that uh, because of their hormones, because of their transition, they're dying and their hormones are attacking their body. And it's because uh, they transitioned that they are now sacrificing their life. Um, so I think it's just really fascinating, the society's type of uh, infatuation with um, intersex and trans bodies and denying one group surgeries and the other one uh, forcing them into surgeries. Absolutely. And how much of that fits into this kind of dominant narrative of um, you cannot have body autonomy if body autonomy means diverging from um, those two boxes of male and female around which we want to organize all sorts of things, you know, from architecture to education to family to public life. And so, you know, the list goes on and on, right? And, and so I wonder also, what is the advantage, you know, I get for babies, there is this kind of freedom for the parents and hopefully for the child to not have the pressure to fit into those boxes. 
what are some of the other advantages of having a fair adoption on state IDs for, in terms of a gender marker? What else that opens up with this fair adoption for gender markers for both intersex folks and non-binary folks? Well, I think that the possibilities are endless. I think that there's still a lot of resistance um, in terms of the sectors that would be impacted down the line. So I'm thinking about educational settings, uh, having locker rooms that are gender specific, um, having uh, facilities that are gender specific too. And by having these third gender options on state IDs, it, it forces educational communities, it forces hospitals, it forces legal centers, it forces a lot of different sectors to really think about how they're providing services and how to make things more gender inclusive, sex inclusive, um, and really just push those boundaries too. I really see a world where uh, we don't have gender abolished or gender removed necessarily, but we have gender filled worlds where we have many different people who can express themselves in all different ways and that that's all celebrated and there's facilities, um, resources and supportive care um, networks for those people. So that's that's the dream, that's the goal. And I think that that can be possible. And it's not just through uh, these third gender options, it's through all of the work that everyone is doing together too. And like you're saying, at the end of the day, this is about autonomy. And right now we're in a time where, you know, we have to say, and we are proudly saying that Black Lives Matter. And mm -hmm. this does intersect with the intersex and non-binary movement in terms of autonomy, being able to, you know, be who you are without fear of retaliation, without fear of violence, um, and to just, like I said, be who you are. And I love the work that Sean Safa-Wall and Pigeon Bagonis, who are both the founders of the Intersex Justice Project, uh, they've been doing these Instagram live videos, really bringing attention to those intersections of being Black and intersex. So I think this is really all important work and uh, we can't do it alone. You know, it's a lot of the efforts of these activists and organizations and people in all different sectors that are making a change. Absolutely. And I love that you brought in that intersection because I know, you know, I'm more familiar with kind of non-binary identities and movements rather than intersex identities and movement, to be honest, even um, though the, I've touched on it, but not as fam deeply familiar. And I know for non-binary folks, that intersection of our bodies are racialized as well as our bodies are gendered is so vital. You know, I know so many kind of black non-binary folks were like, it is a much higher risk for me to present as gender expansive, as gender non-conforming, whatever language we want to use compared to a white non-binary person, for example, because that might attract the attention of the police, that might attract more systemic violence in a healthcare setting, or even just walking down the street, right? Or in, in a variety of situations. And so I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to that intersection of how bodies are racialized as well as our bodies are gendered in your own work in terms of some of the things that you were starting to mention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about how, um, I, I, you know, statistics kind of vary, but I've seen reports of uh, 1.7 to 2% of the population is, is intersex um, and anywhere from 0.6 to 1% of the population is trans or non-binary. So we have a growing population too. And we also have a growing population in the U.S. of racial minorities, or I shouldn't even say racial minorities, I should say <laughs> marginalized racial groups, right? Uh, so we're yes. talking about black, brown, and indigenous communities too. 
um, are growing by the day. And they're also embracing these intersex and trans identities too. So we have a growing intersectional community in the U.S. And I think now more than ever, we really need to be highlighting those intersections and allowing them to lead and, and advocate and, you know, for us to follow uh, their work. So that's, you know, that's where it's at. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I live in Minneapolis and I don't think we could have had that vote in the city council in terms of really starting to abolish the police and build community safety if we didn't have openly like black trans queer council folks who have really been leading and and nourishing this work that really comes from black activists in our community and and just the leadership of black trans and queer folks in the black lives matter movement right both locally and nationally and and black queer femmes of all kinds including trans feminine folks is just such a debt of gratitude right absolutely and uh, so much to talk about, but I want to get back to your work, to your work, and to your organizations. Um, do you find that sometimes there is a little bit of um, uh, an agenda that might be at odd between the intersex movement and the trans and non-binary movement? So, for example, mm-hmm. sometimes I've heard intersex folks say, you know we have different identities and different experiences and we don't want to be uh, lumped in with kind of trans and and or non-binary movements. Of course, some intersex folks also have trans and or non-binary identities because like everybody else of any gender, they also have a gender identity as well as a sex and a birth. So I'm just wondering if there are ever any moments of tension, both around the non-binary and intersex issues or any other intersectional issues that you might think of that, that maybe are a little bit harder to negotiate at times. You, you know, you're, you're um, bringing up like a really interesting topic. So when we're talking about the trans community and the non-binary community and the intersex community, right? These are all kind of separate, but sometimes overlapping things too, right? There's many non-binary yes. people who identify as trans too. They think that trans is a bigger umbrella that does include non-binary. And there's some people who think that trans and non-binary are completely separate things. And same thing with intersex, that intersex is completely different. I think that, you know, trans and non-binary communities, we're talking about gender and intersex is more about sex, right? That physical anatomy and those chromosomes, hormones, Mm -hmm. genitals, right? Um, And so there are different um, struggles. There are different uh, desires and needs of each separate community. Um, And I feel that sometimes within trans and non-binary communities, there is intersex phobia. And sometimes within intersex communities, there is transphobia and non-binary phobia too. Now, the overwhelming majority of intersex people uh, from reports do identify as cisgender. So the gender that they are assigned at birth by their parents, by the surgeon, uh, regardless of being uh, subjected to those surgeries, uh, they typically do identify with it and they're okay and confident with that socialization. Um, And that's good. You know, that's totally fine. And so they don't need to identify as trans. They don't need to identify as non-binary because they're intersex. They can identify however. But it is amazing to see, again, you know, I'm, I'm sh- you know, shouting the name of Pigeon Pagonis and Sean Safa Wall, who are um, openly trans, non-binary, intersex people, right? Living at all those intersections and being of color, right? Being black and brown folks. So I think that it's just really interesting uh, how there can be overlap. There's sometimes a lot of distance. I think that sometimes each person, you know, there's people in each community that have standards and definitions of what trans, non-binary or intersex should look like and be. And there's sometimes, uh, because so many of us 
have been isolated or alienated or even bullied or harassed or pushed away because of those identities, we now claim to them so hard that we get concerned about whether people try to take it away or that we, they try to redefine it. And we feel that sometimes that power that we now have over our identities is uh, limited. It's a limited resource and we can't share it. We can't expand it or else we lose a part of ourselves. And I think that's a, a deeper conversation. I, I, you're a therapist, we understand this, <laughs> that it's a deeper conversation that we all within this greater LGBTQIA plus community need to be having with ourselves around our own shame, um, what our confidence and our pride is rooted in and how we can really support and build off of with, with each other and not off of each other. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of building with each other, right? Because very few things are kind of so polarized uh, and yet we live in a world of polarities. And so I'm really interested in this idea of kind of building with each other. And of course, this kind of legal gender status, gender recognition on IDs is one of this place where this kind of activism kind of can come together, which is kind of what your, your organization does. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there are also times when um, people might feel that having a third gender on a, an ID, for example, closes things down as well as opening them up. For, for example, I have talked with folks who have chosen not to have an X on their ID, even though they could, because at first it can create problems with the fact that passports, you know, so it creates a conflict between state and federal in the US. Uh, I know for me, as somebody who has a green card, I've been advised not to change any of my state ID because then it might mess things up in the, you know, citizenship process later on. Um, but also I know people who have a fear of this will make us more visible. Mm -hmm. Uh, while we are under a hostile government right now to some degree? And could this uh, create a danger for non-binary and intersex folks if that, you know, if there is an X on our ID, it's pretty easy to kind of round us up. I've literally heard people say that. And, and I can hear the intergenerational trauma of, uh, you know, visibility and also the privilege of who gets to be visible and who gets to kind of blend in and maybe not be visible in this moment in history, right? Am I making sense? I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you at once, but just I just really wanted to go there if you're open to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm just, you know, I'm glad that you opened up the door to about intergenerational trauma too. And so I think that mm -hmm. when you're talking about the fear and the concerns around how state violence would react to this type of legal recognition is just so important to recognize and for us to also address too. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's something that we even have concerns about, too, is something that how our um, current political administration could use these forms of uh, recognition and celebration and visibility against us. Um, I think that in the work that we're doing, there's been an overwhelming amount of people who are hungry for this type of recognition, though and um, who have been pursuing these options too. So I think that just even just having the availability and the option for people to decide is important, right? Because without that option, uh, people don't have the opportunity to choose. There's not that autonomy, there's not that choice. And I think that just providing that option, regardless of the administration that we're under, is really important for our work in advancing to uh, create more genderful uh, a more genderful world. Um, now, I'm hoping that the Trump administration will come to an end later this year was, as we vote. 
Um, well, I can't vote myself. I'm actually a Canadian citizen. I'm going through the permanent residency process. Um, so I can't vote myself, but I highly encourage whoever is listening just to get him out of office. And that's all I'm going to say. So oh, I'm on the same boat as you. I, I joined I joined that plea to anybody who can vote. Yes. I'm just like, come on. <laughs> but that's that's where I'm at right now. And I think that this work still needs to continue on because it's it's beyond the Trump administration. Um, this is something that is, again, a small step in a bigger picture, um, a bigger long term sustainable picture um, and and road towards uh, a more genderful world. So. Mm-hmm. I love that expression of a more genderful world. I know that when I do training, I always say, you know, the, the idea is not that we just cancel gender or, you know, have an a homogeneous androgynous gender, that we can actually match as an androgyny is its own beauty. But the idea is that everybody can express their gender in a, you know, in a way that is liberated from settler colonialism and all these other forces that have kind of shaped cisgenderism, right? So I love that expression of genderful. Are there any particular, even under this administration for the last almost four years, are there any particular victories that your organization is proud of in terms of the work you've been doing? You know, we we have really seen that uh, increase in uh, states who recognize that for adoption pretty in a pretty rapid manner. And I wonder if there's something that you're particularly proud of that your organization has contributed to. Absolutely. I think that that's all really been really exciting about that. Uh, with helping states pass that legislation, I think that even under the Trump administration, there have been a lot of political um, advocacy uh, successes for the greater LGBTQIA plus community. And I, you know, I'm really proud and really excited about what we've done and what we will continue to be doing uh, this year and over the past couple of years too. Um, you know, we worked with um, uh, New York legislators too and, and organizations and you know, successfully passed uh, an X marker now for birth certificates, which goes into effect today. Um, you know, I've always- That's been, amazing. Mm-hmm, and I've been always proud to, to have been involved in the organization when we actually were able to pass and lobby um, the X gender marker option here in California. So I'm just really proud as someone from Los Angeles to be able to know that my friends and myself have this option. Uh, it's just really empowering and really exciting. Uh, beyond that too, we're still building partnerships with intersex organizations to continue to write legislation to, to ban these surgeries, these invasive unconsensual surgeries. Um, and you know, just to see the victories too with the Supreme Court wins over the past week with workplace protections, um, as well as um, with DACA too. I think that these are all really important things that, that although they may not be exclusive to the intersex or non-binary community, they do intersect with these um, identities and with these experiences too. Um, and beyond that too, I think that during COVID-19, I've been really proud to sign on to various different letters to uh, Congress people um, and to uh, senators, as well as um, uh, various different politicians throughout the US uh, to really promote more funding for TGI organizations, especially those that are led by people of color, black, brown, indigenous folks too, who are trans, uh, non-binary and intersex. So it's it's been, it's been a lot of good work. and. I know that we're in a, in a lot of chaos, but I think that sometimes it's in chaos that some of the most beautiful moments come out and the most um, incredible and strong organizing can sometimes uh, come to fruition. 
Oh, absolutely. That was I was um, walking around my neighbor the other day and there's a beautiful mural that says beauty from the ashes, you know, and, and for me, it's really that reminder of like, we need to take the moments of celebration and of joy and the small victories, even though we know there's so much more work to do, because those are the moments that nourish us as a community, right? Okay, we can take a breath and then we can keep doing the work because there is so much work to do, especially in an intersectional movement. And talking about work, you know, and, and you mentioned COVID-19, I think one piece of that work is education. Because I know many folks are also afraid of interfacing with a healthcare system that is discriminatory. I know for myself as a visibly an open trans and non-binary person, I don't want to end up on a ventilator with nobody to advocate for me. You know, it's bad enough when I've had to go to the emergency room way too many times as somebody who's disabled and interface with providers. And so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the work your organization does around educating um, professionals and educating communities and educating the general public around why is this work important? Why does this work matter? Why is it important to treat everybody with dignity and respect, you know, no matter what our sex or gender? Absolutely. So I think that education is part of the work, right? And it's about uh, really addressing some of the ignorance, some of the miseducation. And let's be frank too, we all have been miseducated. We all carry around our own intersex phobias, mm -hmm. transphobias, um, non-binary phobias, racism, classism, all those types of oppressions, we carry those with us. So educating and providing a space for people to be vulnerable, to learn, to grow, is just part of the process, the key part of the process. Um, so uh, starting later this year, uh, we'll probably be launching a lot of uh, trainings and workshops online and potentially in person based on COVID-19 uh, in order to educate surgeons, uh, medical care professionals, um, teachers, schools, parents in particular too, um, on non-binary identities, but in particular intersex um, autonomy, intersex bodies, and normalizing it for them too. And, you know, sharing facts like that, like I said, 1.7 to 2% of the population exhibits intersex traits too, and that's as common as being redheaded, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it's you know, these types of things that we can bring up will help normalize and uh, create a space for people to take a second, you know, take another moment before they make the decision to uh, have that surgery for their chi their children, uh, to make the decision to uh, force their child into a box, uh, to shame their child about who they truly are. They'll take a moment and go, oh, hey, I remember that training. Let's see how I can apply this to my life. Let's see how I can really reframe this moment and create a more empowering uh, world for my child. Um, or for my patient, or for my student, whatever that be, and however it applies. But we do have our education committee working together right now. They are forming those workshops, that content, those materials, um, and maybe even have our own podcast or maybe some sort of blog, uh, so that way we can share our work and make it as accessible as possible. Absolutely. I have to say that I always say that I'm an accidental entrepreneur and then accidental uh, podcaster because I was like, people kept telling me, you should have a podcast. And then there was a podcast movement challenge. I was like, I should do that. <laughs> and I have not stopped seeds. Sometimes there are little breaks <laughs> when there's too much life, but it has been really uh, satisfying. So I definitely recommend going for it. I think that people are hungry for stories that are not covered in the the you know dominant media and the mainstream media and i think we 
I think as trans and queer and intersex folks, we're used to creating our own spaces, right? If there isn't a space for us, then let's create our own spaces. And uh, I think we're good at that. So I'm looking forward to that podcast if your organization decides to go down that road. I am also interested, like you are so passionate about your advocacy and about your work. And I'm curious about what brought you, you know, and you founded the organization, you've, you've done a lot of work. Um, what has brought you to be this passionate and uh, really to focus your energy on this work of advocacy? Yeah, I think, well, I've been involved in advocacy work, I think, ever since I first came out. And when I moved from Michigan to Orange County, California, at the age of 17, now keep in mind that coming from Michigan, I thought all of California was this, you know, sunshine, golden land, everything was perfect, everyone's liberal. And I ended up in Orange County and in this really conservative college campus uh, where there's busts of, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, right? Really conservative head figures and politicians. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where I come out. And I realized really early on into being out first as gay and then a couple of years later as non-binary and trans uh, that I felt so alone. Actually, I think at the time that I came out as trans, I was the only trans person that I know of, openly trans person on campus. And before that, there were other queer people, but no one really trans at my time when I came out. And so I, it felt so alone, so isolating. And I realized that I needed to speak up for myself. I needed to advocate for myself or else nothing was going to happen. Um, I realized that if I wanted trans visibility on campus, if I wanted non-binary visibility in Orange County, I was going to have to do it myself. So <laughs> that's where my advocacy passion first started uh, was really to sustain myself, to be able to provide a platform for myself. And in the process of being so out and visible and doing that work, I was actually able to bring in more trans and non-binary students to campus and including having more students on campus come out and as trans and non-binary because I was there first, right? Or because I walked those steps first. And so knowing the change that one person can make by just living their authentic self and advocating for themselves is amazing. So I just took that and I've kept running with that passion and with that excitement of being able to create a better world for myself and create a better world for my friends, my community, strangers even too. Um, And that's why I've gotten involved in this work. I've worked with various different parts of our greater LGBTQIA plus community uh, with survivors of violence, people who are living with or at risk of HIV. Um, And I've taken on this role as executive director uh, of the Non-Binary and Intersex Recognition Project because I just think it's a really exciting and different initiative. I don't see a lot of other organizations doing something like it. And I think that it's a really, really necessary thing that isn't quite addressed or taken seriously even, but it still has a really serious impact. So I love that it's like an underdog kind of organization. And I love that I'm able to lead this now and really revamp it and take it to the next level and increase our impact by tenfold. I love that passion. And, and I really hear you because I think sometimes that can be that culture of scarcity in our movements. You know, there are so many issues that we need to pay attention to, right? You know, prison abolition is super important for, you know, queer communities of color. And like immigration is a super important issue. Housing, violence, all of those are important issues. And there is something about recognition that's also so important, right? It's so basic to us as human to want to feel seen 
and valued and recognized for who we are and feel there is that space. And so how can we find a way of holding all these different pieces of the work? We can't do it individually, right? So we do it in communities. So as long as we can hold all these different pieces and work in these different ways, it, you know, that's so important because recognition, it feels so core. Maybe it's because I'm a therapist, right? But it feels so core, you know, if you're seen is such a, it's such a fundamental piece, I think, for humans to feel seen and recognized. Absolutely. I completely agree. I think uh, to be seen, to be loved, to be celebrated, um, I think those are all definitely, definitely core needs of any person. I think that even during COVID-19, it's made it really hard for people to connect with each other, to be seen and to be celebrated the way that they typically would have been. Um, and I know that COVID-19 has been in incredibly difficult for a lot of um, our queer, trans, and intersex youth um, who, you know, just mm -hmm. are losing maybe those spaces, or maybe they're at homes now where they're facing uh, higher rates of violence and harassment or rejection too. It's been really heartbreaking to read reports of people, um, you know, young uh, queer trans kids being kicked out of their houses during COVID-19. Um, so I think that it's, you know, again, another time and now more than ever, we need to be rallying behind our queer, trans, and intersex youth. Absolutely. And what a great time to have this conversation during Pride Month. And I know I've talked to a lot of people who are like, well, what does Pride Month means during the time of COVID-19 and also during the time of an uprising of kind of Black Lives Matter and an uprising also of really recognizing that keeping communities safe um, needs to mean something very different if we want to keep all of our communities safe, right? So I'm, I'm just really, really grateful to be having this conversation. It feels very, very timely. I know that I could keep talking about this and I want to be respectful of your time. So is there anything that I know I was like, I could keep going on for a long time. I love interviewing folks. Is there anything we haven't talked about yet that you really were hoping to cover during this conversation? Yeah, I think that um, for anyone that's listening to who is intersex, who is non-binary, I just you know want you to know that you are not alone, and that you have there's so many resources, including our organization, including Alex too. Um, there's so many people who are here to uh, listen to you and who understand and uh, who are ready to rally behind you as well. Um, you know, and part of knowing that we're not alone is also knowing our history and knowing that uh, non-binary and intersex identities and experiences and bodies have been around since the dawn of time. And we see uh, these types of traits in other species even too. But uh, when we go back centuries before colonization, um, and even after colonization in Hawaii with Mahu and in the Samoan Islands with the Fafafine, uh, with, uh, you know, here in Indigenous America and in Turtle Island, there's two-spirit people who've been embracing masculine and feminine traits who have had bodies that go beyond male and female. And I think knowing our history and knowing that those identities and that culture and those um, experiences have survived colonization, it survived imperialism, have survived so many different uh, challenges, uh, just proves how resilient we are as people and how resilient we are as a community. Um, so just know that you have the power inside you and that you are amazing and wonderful. And again, you're not alone. 
Absolutely. I often love to talk about um, ancestors of identities or experience, queer ancestors, trans ancestors, gender expansive ancestors, right? It does provide a sense of strength and resilience to feel connected to um, something larger than us, especially when we might feel not great about ourselves in the year now. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. And is there a call to action that you might want to share with our listeners and maybe especially listeners who may not be trans and non-binary or intersex and who do want to uh, support your organization or really want to do more work in this area? Um, so this is a good time for you to share that call to action if you like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely encourage if you're interested in learning more about our work or supporting our cause, uh, you can visit our website, which is www.intersexrecognition.org. Um, and on that main page, as of now to the end of June, we have our Give Out Day fundraiser. And Give Out Day is um, uh, every June 30th. And it's the only day of the year dedicated to annual giving, donating, fundraising for LGBTQIA plus organizations in the US. So if you're interested in donating to our cause, you're more than welcome to up until the end of June. And beyond that, we're still accepting donations, of course, um, on, our, on our website too, so you can donate there. But I will say though that, um, you know, as much as we need your support, um, I definitely encourage um, listeners, people who wanna get involved to actually, um, you know, donate first to black, trans and non-binary and intersex led organizations. So check out the work of the Intersex Justice Funding Project or Intersex Justice Project. Uh, check out the work of the Marsha B. Johnson Institute. Here in Los Angeles, we have the Unique Women's Coalition, which is the only Black trans woman-led organization for Black trans uh, women. Um, there's lots of different organizations to uh, consider. If you ever need more information, you can always reach out to me at addison at intersexrecognition.org. Wonderful. And if people want to follow the work of your organization on social media, are there particular places where you kind of show up on social media so that people can follow the wonderful work you're doing? So we're definitely revamping our social media right now. Um, so I will say that. So just be, just be a little patient with us as we get up to date with our <laughs> social media. But we do have an inner, um, uh, Instagram page and a Facebook page as well as a Twitter page. And you can follow us on Instagram in particular. Um, that's at Intersex Rec. And you can follow more information about our campaigns, upcoming opportunities. Um, and if you're even interested in uh, joining us as a volunteer with any of our six uh, committees with marketing, uh, research, development, volunteer coordination, policy legislation, and education, uh, feel free to reach out to me. We can talk more. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, such wonderful wisdom and insight and hard work with our Gender Stories listeners. And Gender Stories listeners, as ever, thank you for your support. Thank you for your patience when I take a few weeks to get an episode out. But I hope those episodes are worth waiting for. And also, if you want to find out more about gender and you want a really good introduction, you know that there is How to Understand Your Gender available at your independent bookstore and also Life Isn't Binary. And in the fall, there'll be a new book, especially for you providers, called Gender Trauma. And it's on healing um, historical, uh, cultural, and social trauma around uh, rigid gendered binary and how it impacts different bodies. So, and thank you so much, Addison. This has been such a wonderful, delightful time. Thank you so much for being on Gender Stories. 
I'm really grateful for your work. Um, and I know I will benefit from your work and so many other people will benefit from your work. So you also have my gratitude for what you do every day. Thank you, Alex, for just creating this platform in the first place for having me on. Um, you're doing incredible work um, every day uh, with this podcast, with being a therapist, with everything that you're doing. I'm just so, so excited and proud of you and grateful for everything that you do for the community. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I love this mutual admiration that happens. <laughs> Trans and non-binary folks were all like, oh my God, you're amazing. You're I love you. Amazing. I love you. I know, exactly. I was like, I'm so glad you're in the world. Yeah. So <laughs> listeners, if you are missing community, I hope that this gives you a little taste of how we can find community with one another, even through a conversation. And my wish for you in this Pride Month is that you can find community and support and uh, even if you cannot find community where you are, that technology can connect you to other folks so that you can find some of this joy for yourself. And thanks for listening. <laughs>